0: DeeDee and I are back, and on today's Black on the Scene episode, we are here for another deep dive and soulful conversation that features Elizabeth Leiba, who joins us to talk all things community, creating content, and Black history education. She's a college professor with more than 10 years' experience teaching American literature. Elizabeth is the founder and course developer for Black History and Culture Academy, a subscription-based unlimited access e-learning platform with 40-plus self-paced courses on African history and literature, African-American history and literature, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Elizabeth has been published in the New York Times, Forbes Magazine, Time Magazine, and has written several op-ed pieces.
1: I tell you what, if you follow Liz on LinkedIn, which is how we met, it's clear why she was selected as one of LinkedIn's top voices and as a member of the inaugural LinkedIn Creator Accelerator Program. Not only does she share thought-provoking content, but she has these epic polls about Black and pop culture, and one of my faves are the polls that she does on Black music that are meant to bring us together over our shared love of Black and army and hip-hop music. Elizabeth is the host of the Black Power Moves podcast, which is a part of the Ebony Covering Black America podcast network. John and I are looking forward to being on her show soon.
0: Liz, welcome to Black on the welcome. Scene. We are so happy to have you today. How are you feeling today? How are you? I'm
1: excited.
2: I've been looking forward to talking to y'all, so let's get it popping. I'm ready. Let's do it.
0: All right. And now you're on the other side, so like we get so to ask good. you all the great questions. Yeah. So, I'm,
2: I'm here um, for it. So
0: I want to... I want to start off with going going back a little bit to to the early days of little Liz, little Elizabeth, um, growing up as, a, as an immigrant. And I want to talk about what were your dreams and what were you wanting to become as you were kind of developing into your adulthood?
2: That's a really good question. And I don't get asked that question very much. So kudos to you, John, because you asked me something that people really don't ask me. And a lot of people don't know that I am an immigrant. I'm raised in the bottom. So I'm from South Florida. That's where this accent come from. Because sometimes people will be like, sound like maybe you from New York. And I'm like, no, I'm not really from New York. And I hear a little something, something going on, but I'm from the UK. So I was actually born in London, Southeast London, Peckham, which is where, if y'all know about Damson Idris, who plays on Snowfall, British actor, yes. amazing. Yes. He's from Peckham. So that's where I, it's kind of it's a black neighborhood. It's very culturally, there are some areas in London that are very filled with black people, Jamaicans, Nigerians, a lot of immigrants are, grew, uh, are raised in London, are grew up in London, because even though you get this uh, image on TV, it's just like the royal family and the queen and people sipping tea. It's actually people over there that are immigrants from all over the world. And it is a lot of black folk there. I mean, representatively, probably a small percentage compared to here in America, probably like 8% or something like that. But that's where I grew up. And I came here at the age of 12. And as far as what I really wanted to do, I wanted to be a writer. That's what I've always really wanted to be. Um, I went to school for journalism. I was always the the kid that was sitting in the corner by herself, writing in a poetry notebook, writing stories, um, always observing everything around me. I wanted to be a writer, went to school on a journalism scholarship, but went to a PWI, went to University of Florida, and just had a tough time there. Just didn't feel like I fit in. Actually, had a false arrest while I was there. I got arrested, which I, I wrote up a piece about that for CNN. I was falsely accused of stealing some batteries while I was at that school. Um, went to jail. Um, had to post bond. Had to sue the Eckert Drug Store that called the police on me. Got the charges dropped. So I had a really rough time at that school, just feeling very othered, feeling very displaced, not feeling encouraged like I did here in South Florida. went to a totally black high school. All my teachers wore kente cloth. All my teachers were like our parents. They were like, you gonna get this work. You gonna read this Malcolm X. You gonna read this shake onto you You gonna understand your history and that you came from greatness. And then when I went to the PWI, it was kind of like, well, if you fail, you pass. I don't really care what you do. It's really on you. So it was a big culture shock for me. And leaving there, I didn't have the confidence to be a writer. I actually ended up never stepping inside a newsroom, even though I was there on a full scholarship. I had done internships here in South Florida at the local newspaper. I just felt like maybe I'm just not going to be good enough. So I ended up going into education, and that became the field I actually ended up pursuing. But initially, I did want to write for a living. That was really always
1: my goal. Liz, I got to tell you, we have a shared uh, sort of history I went to middle school and high school in the bottom. I went to Homestead Senior High School. My dad was in the Air Force. South Florida, stand up! (laughs) I don't think people realize. Like, I'm also, but I'm from Alabama, um, and my family's you know blackety black. We're not immigrants, but it's such an interesting place to grow up because it is also it's it's equally sort of diverse but also segregated in a lot of ways yes um but it was a great and i'm uh, a few years older than you but i love it what high school did you go to i went to dillard high school right in the heart of fort lauderdale <laughs> yes the dirty dirty the dirty dirty um, and i love that and you went to an sec school as well i yes. went to the university of alabama oh gosh um, we rivals and- then now dd we rivals that's right, <laughs> that's right. I knew you were going to be good folk when we connected uh, over on LinkedIn. And I would love for you to just share a little bit more about this sort of education journey, right? So it's funny because the way that I'm looking at it is your love of writing, of course, would somehow also inform the education, the, the getting into education. And you have like, about three, four, five degrees, don't you? <laughs>
2: yeah, I stay getting degrees. I'm like Ash him. I just, I just be collecting degrees. Like, let me get a degree over here. Let me get a degree over there. I never was really motivated to get a PhD because working in higher ed, most of the people that got a PhD, you'd be like, you real dumb. You had no common sense. So I just couldn't wrap my mind around getting a PhD, but I had like three master's degrees. <laughs> I'm just like, let me collect another master's degree. So yeah, I I feel as though I didn't have the, the confidence to be a writer. My parents are immigrants, so they was kind of awesome. Like, but Elizabeth, you're going to be a writer. Like, a writer can't make money. How you going to make money being a writer? That don't make no sense. My mother was like, you can't go nursing school? You want to be a nurse? I'm like, a nurse? I don't like blood. I don't want to be in the hospital. No. So I ended up going to education because it seemed like even though Teachers don't make money. It's a stable. She could at least go tell her friends. She's a teacher. So she go tell her friends she's a writer, they're going to be like, she live under the bridge. Is she homeless? Like, how does a writer make money? So it just was a lot of stigma attached to it. Plus, going to a school that was a really big top journalism school and just feeling like, can I cut the mustard? they like, when you go in the newsroom, it's going to be cut through. A lot of the black journalists, when you go in the newsroom, they're like, girl, don't do it. This career sucks. You're going to be just like fighting the power in here. They don't, They ain't trying to hear it. So education just seemed like I could go in there, have summers off. I'm going to be poor, but at least I'm going to get my breaks. The kids, you know, will be in recess and I'm going to be on my planning period. I could chill, take a nap in my car. Like in my mind, I'm like, there's some upside to being a teacher. So that's kind of really why I pursued it. I always tell people I had a love of writing and I just started teaching students how to write because I knew how to do it. But it's like they say, those that don't know how to do something teach, but I really knew how to do it. I just didn't have the confidence to really do it. So that's how I got into the classroom. Initially teaching K through 12, I taught eighth grade American history. And then I eventually parlayed my way into higher education. I worked in the recruiting side and would always see the faculty members walking by with their briefcase. I'm like, okay, you know what? Maybe I could kind of get into the classroom and be able to make more impact. And rather than just touching the student on the admission side, seeing them and then they go on about their business in the classroom, I get to really interact with students, maybe be that faculty member that I wanted when I was in undergrad, because I didn't have any black at that PWI at UF. I had one black faculty member the whole time I was there. And I started to feel like I'm in South Florida. I'm seeing a lot of students that look like me. They don't have representation in the classroom. They don't have anybody to encourage them. A lot of them, when I was seeing them on the admission side, was like, I can't do it. I got kids. I got a job. How am I going to do this? And I'm like, you know what? I could go in the classroom and I could probably be that person to encourage them. And that's really what led me into being in the classroom was how can I create an environment where, te- where students can see a teacher that on the first day, instead of saying, look left, look right, neither of them people going to be at graduation and all the, the things they tell you. I tell my students the first day is uh, what I used to when I was in the classroom. I used to tell them, you're going to get an A. If I have something to do with it, do your work, you're going to succeed in this class. So I tried to be in the classroom that person that taught them how to write, taught them how to create, taught them how to dream, taught them to take their trauma and put it on paper if they needed to, taught them how to express themselves, taught them that, I look like you, but I'm from right around the corner, like literally walking distance from this neighborhood right here where it's crackheads, dope boys on the corner. If I can do this, you can do this, too.
0: I love it. I love that you're saying that because you're pouring into, obviously, your students in, in such a beautiful way. But going again, going back to your child for, for a second, you said you had a, a just a, a, a desire to write who fed into you that same way, right? Who was encouraging you to do it? Were you just reading books? Were you seeing something on television? Were you just, was it a sp- specific teacher that was kind of like encouraging you to, to do that? Because I know your parents felt one way, but like, you know, how, how did you kind of like just say, I'm really going to do that? Who was feeding into you in that way?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, nobody asked me that either. It was like, I was, I always felt, like an outsider i think that's why i dove into books especially as an immigrant when i came here i did not feel like i belong i look brown but i got a british accent people like do you want some tea and crumpets like you don't belong <laughs> like do you want some tea and i'm like why they like what <laughs> like what are you talking about so it was like i didn't feel like i really fit in here in south florida I'm a Jamaican, a descendant, my, my parents are Jamaican, but all the Jamaicans like, but you sound like an American because you, you're trying to mimic them now to fit in with them. So it was like, I was bouncing around. I had no home and it was like books became my comfort. I would be in the corner just in lunch. I wouldn't be sitting with nobody because I was getting bullied. So I would just dive into a book and just sit in a corner and read. And I would just dive into culturally how I became so obsessed with literally Black culture and literature and history was because I'm like, well, I don't look like anybody else. I don't feel like anybody else, but I look like everybody else. So how can I develop some commonality with everybody around me? I got to learn about, and that's why when people say a lot of folk in the majority, well, we didn't never, we were never taught about Black history. We don't know anything about it. Nobody ever gave, like, I'm like, no, you have no excuse. Cause I got here at 12 and I didn't know it either. I just dove into books and books became my best friend. That's where I got that love of books. And then by extension of that, the love of writing was because I'm seeing all these stories. I want to be able to create my own stories as well. So they kind of went hand in hand. But it was because books were only the only friend I could really
1: have. That, again, another commonality that you were bringing out of me. I mean, I was a social kid but I loved reading. And I didn't, unfortunately, really discover Black literature until I got to college at the University of Alabama. And I was like, or women's studies. And it just changed my life. And I was like, why are, am I just now learning about this? And I'm 18, 19 years old. Um, so you're seeing what's lacking in the education system and also trying to pour this sense of, of identity, not just into the students, but also, you know, into yourself, you're building up your identity. Is that what inspired you to ultimately create the Black History and Culture Academy? Yeah, it's a really good question
2: too. Y'all really coming with the fire today because y'all asked me some questions. I don't think anybody ever asked me. The reason <laughs> I created Black History Culture Academy was actually because I had been very vocal and outspoken on LinkedIn. I started right after George Floyd was murdered. I had a podcast previously before I even had the podcast where Ebony was on higher education. I met up with a couple guys on LinkedIn and they were like, you seem like you kind of like active in the comments. You seem like you got a big background in higher ed. Do you want to join with us and do a podcast? And I was like, sure. I mean, that sounds fun. So I ended up doing that with them for like a year and a half. We interviewed a lot of college presidents and stuff like that. But at one point, right when George Floyd was murdered, the lockdown had just happened. I started to really get in my head and I was just like, I don't think I want to do this podcast right now. I need to take some time because- it's it's a murder just happened in front of my face that I'm very triggered by. It's protests going on around the country. I'm feeling anxiety. My kids were in the house playing cops and robbers. My son said, put your hands up. And I was like, stop it, stop it. stop I started freaking out. And they were like, mommy, okay, sorry. And I was just like, I'm like having anxiety attacks. So my podcast co-host, he said, well, you know what? You People are already starting to listen to you on LinkedIn. Why don't you just channel that emotion that you're feeling and maybe just start posting about it. And literally the next day I started posting about George Floyd, about social justice, about racial profiling. I posted for the first time that I had been arrested. Nobody knew that. My mom, my college roommate, and my husband. Because I was ashamed that I had been arrested, even though it wasn't my fault. Even though the charges got thrown out, I had a receipt for the item that they said I stole. I just couldn't find it. And I had it in the bottom of my book bag when they called the police on me. And um, it just, you know, I wasn't able to produce it. And that's why they had me go to jail. The police said, if you want to sign this no trespass, they're giving you an opportunity to sign it. It just means that you can never come back in here. And I was like, no, nah, because I know I didn't. So I end up going to jail. So I posted about that. And people are starting to really like connect with that. Like, wow. Oh, my God. You're telling. I was just like, wouldn't tell everything. Because my thought process was I have nothing to lose. I'm not looking for a job. I'm not on LinkedIn to network with anybody or get any kind of connection. People told me, don't do it, girl. You're going to put a, a target on your back. I'm like, for what? Because I've been at my job like a decade. I'm not job hunting. I don't really care what people think about me. I talked to my husband. I said, sit down here. Because if I do lose the job or something happened, you're going to have to pick up another shift at work. Because it just is what it is. I don't care. I'm triggered. Everybody about to be triggered. And I went on LinkedIn every single day. Sometimes I post two times a day, three times a day. Because anything, you know, I wake up three o'clock in the morning. I'm like, you know what the hell's happening? People need to know that black women getting paid 80 cent on the dollar. <laughs> and I would just post in the middle of the night. And people were like, you just don't care. You're just saying the things that we all want to say, that we can't say, that we're afraid to say. And one thing that, to answer your question... That made me want to start Black History Culture Academy. Is what was getting me really mad was the people in the majority were like, "Oh my God, really? That's shocking! I didn't know that. I've never heard that. I never learned that." And I did a poll. Y'all know I love a poll, and I would say the majority of people said they had never taken a class in Black History, didn't know anything about Black History. I was asking, "Have you ever had a Black teacher?" A lot of them never even had a Black teacher. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create my own Black History Culture Academy. So people out here cannot say they never took a Black History. Like, hey, it's $14.99, just like Netflix. Go sign up and you can take these little classes. It ain't no semester. It's like a four module. Because I do that for my job. I, my job right now, even though I'm trained in um, teaching American literature right now for the past like few years, I'm the Director of Instructional Design and Innovation for Career College here in, in Fort Lauderdale. So- that was what I was doing for a job. I'm like, if I can do it for this school, I could do it for my culture, for my people, for those in the majority that don't know this information and need to know. And I just would sit there and be like, Black literature, Black culture, Black music, Black dance, African or they say we didn't have literature, okay, African oral literature, Black or African religion. They say we didn't have a religion, let me make a class about this, Black dance. Anything that came to mind, I was just making classes about it willy nilly. And I made like 40 classes and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to roll this out Black History Month of 2021. And then the Capitol Uprising happened on January 6th. And I remember I was in the bed wrapped up like a burrito because I was triggered. And I said, you know what I'm about to do? I roll this out today
1: because
2: these people need this information. And that's literally what I did. I just launched it. I had meant to take another month, get everything together, get up to like, I think I want to put like 100 classes in there. And I said, no, nah, they're going to deal with these 40 because they still ask me for a reading list. They still tell me they don't know. So 40 classes, that'll give them something to get started with. And I just wanted to inform people and give people this sense of Black history is not something that should be just like a icing on the cake. Like if you want to know, you know Black history is American history. We built this country. We're the foundation of this country. We are Our blood is in the soil of this country. So you're going to learn. You need to know if you say you don't know, you don't want to know, that's your choice, but you can't say the resources aren't there. As a as an educator, I get really frustrated when people say there's not resources. Google, Wikipedia, like there's tons of resources. So I created that literally as a way to kind of counter that narrative of, oh, it's too difficult. I don't know where to find this information. I'm like, okay, I can literally over Thanksgiving break, I created 40 classes. You can find this information. This information is, I all the classes are creative commons which means it's OER material. It has no copyright. It's just information I gathered from across the internet. I'm like, if you really wanted to, the same way I sat there at 12 and read Sheikh Antijop and read Alex Haley and read Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, you could do it. I went to the library, walked to the library with my library card, went through the card catalog. It was no Google. So you don't have an excuse. And that was literally my goal was to give people the understanding that Black history is core to your understanding of being living walking in America
1: it is liz and i got to tell you just in 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 obviously connecting with you on linkedin but also doing research for our conversation today i was like liz is the truth because just you posting in the middle of the night feeling triggered set off a firestorm on LinkedIn, the New York times article that references your post blackity black, black, black post and how so much of the workplace, uh, the black folks in, in corporate and on LinkedIn started using it as a vehicle to really connect. And then of course, the the fallout of being shadow banded and all all of these things. And I I, I have to say, And and ask you where you got. So you could have kept quiet and sort of small in your books, but you had the fortitude to you share so much. You share so much about your struggles. You share so much about who you are. What inspired that? It's not just the being triggered, but the the courage and being that vulnerable to be able to just be like, I don't care. My husband knows, my kids know, my parents now know, but you share so much of who you are. You're unapologetic. And I think most of us wish we could be that way. Talk about just what you're tapping into to continue to show up that way authentically, vulnerably, and your whole self.
2: That's a really good question. And I really feel like I'm tapping into the voices and the spirit of the ancestors, to be honest with you. Because there's a time sometimes when I look in the mirror and I feel like somebody saying, keep going. There's times that I feel so, so discouraged. I'm so discouraged. I want to cry because I'm like the revolution. It doesn't seem like it's happening. It's not coming. Maybe it'll come a hundred years from now. My children's children's children will see it, but I don't see it. And I'll get so down. But then it's just a voice inside that just says, You can't. You got to keep going. You got to keep pushing. My hero is John Lewis. And, you know, y'all know that he had the famous mugshot and he was smirking in that mugshot. And they asked him, Why are you smirking in the mugshot? And he was like, 21 years old in that mugshot when he was arrested, was on the bridge of Selma, got beaten over the head so hard on the bridge of Selma by police on mounted police with on horseback got beaten by them so badly that he had a scar across his head his whole entire life. His hand was pinned to his his side because he couldn't even move his hand properly after being beaten on the bridge to Selma. And he just said, I was smirking in the mugshot because I knew I was on the right side of history. He was one person that I really would say his story really resonated with me because this idea of see something, say something, do something, I think that's what I latched on to. Honestly, it was being triggered. Because if somebody would have told me, like, in 2019 that I would have been doing this, I would have been like, no, I'm not. I would never. I saw other people getting really riled up after Trayvon Martin was killed, including, like, I have a sorority sister. She works for Ben Crump's law firm. And I remember seeing her getting really active after Trayvon Martin. I was like, girl, you just, mm. like, I scroll by her post. I'm like, what is she doing? Like, I just couldn't wrap my mind around it because I'm like, I don't, ha- I don't have time for other trauma. I got enough trauma that I'm dealing with just paying bills and living and raising kids and going to work and being a wife. Why would I want to take on additional responsibility to fight the power for the whole culture, for the whole black community? So I didn't really get it until the day that I saw the video of George Floyd being killed. I had avoided it that whole first week that it came out. I saw it on social media. I saw that they were talking about it. And I was like, you know what? I don't need that for myself. And I will not watch it. I had really made a promise to myself that I would not watch it. I knew the protests were going on. I knew that a man had been murdered by the police, but I made a conscious effort because I'm very, I'm an empath. I'm very triggered by other people's trauma. If I see somebody crying, it's always been something very embarrassing to me. Like if I'm in a movie and it's a sad scene, I'll literally start crying. Anything that's traumatic, I typically will tap into those emotions and it's like I'm very triggered by that, especially trauma. So I didn't want to see it. And I remember I was watching uh, TV. I wasn't really watching. I wasn't paying attention. I think I was doing some other um, little errands around the house, doing some things, cleaning up or whatever. My son was sitting on, at the floor and my feet playing, but the TV was on, but the sound was off. And something made me look up and it was playing on CNN. And I was just like, Transfixed by it. I was like, oh my God, that's the thing that I've been trying to avoid. And I was like, it was nowhere I could go because it was like right there on the flat screen, right on the wall. And I remember I just turned it up. I don't even know why I did that. And it was a part where he called out for his mom. And I just, my heart just started racing. My son is sitting at my feet. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta do something. Like I can't just not do something, but I just didn't know what to do. And it was in that week time that I just started thinking about my role and what I needed to do, had that conversation with my podcast host. And I'm like, this is it. I have to use my voice. I don't care what happens. I don't care what the consequences are. I don't care if people like it, don't like it. I have to get these emotions out. And like y'all said, I, I'm not a writer. It's not like I could go to the New York Times and say I'm going to write this article or go anywhere to get these feelings out. So I was already on LinkedIn. LinkedIn actually became my diary. That's why I post three o'clock. Because uh, people don't post in their diary, put it right in their diary at noon or, at, you know, you, post, you write in your diary whenever the feeling comes to you, right? So that's what I did. And sometimes people say, you should only post it on LinkedIn between 10 and noon. You have to do this. You have to do that. I didn't follow none of that. Because I was like, I don't really care. I don't care if nobody don't like this. I'm going to put it somewhere. I got to get these feelings and purge them out of myself. And LinkedIn became... just the, the lucky winner for where my feelings needed to go.
1: And so many of us followed suit on, on that. And again, you building community around your story, your passion, your trauma is just, it's, it's so inspiring and just literally mind blowing. And so is this when LinkedIn comes calling about the creator program at seeing the folks that you're mobilizing, how did that all come to be? That's a really good question too, because <laughs> it really with LinkedIn it's been kind of like a,
2: a, a roller coaster. Initially, uh, when I first started getting active, um, right around the time that the New York Times article came out about Black LinkedIn, that was toward the end of the year, the, the year that George Floyd was murdered. That article came out, and right around that time, also I got Black, uh, I got LinkedIn Top Voice in Education. So I was kind of being known as someone that was very outspoken and vocal on LinkedIn. People were knowing that I was like that go-to person for a raw voice. And that was another thing that made me double down on just being really transparent. I've talked about my bisexuality. I've talked about being a victim of sexual assault and domestic violence. I've talked about struggle with mental illness. Because I'm like, there's no point in me hiding anything because I already said I got arrested. So what... What could possibly be any more, you know, stigmatizing than that? So there were a lot of things that people didn't know about me, but I was like, these are things that probably a lot of other people are ashamed of or are hiding or are thinking about or are saying, I can't talk about this in the workplace. And a lot of people thought it was like, oh, heteronorm, she's married. Uh, I Somebody made like a, 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 like a homophobic comment. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to about the post about my sexual identity because people need to know you're around here making comments. You don't know who you're making comments to. So it was things that would happen on the platform that would make me say I need to be vocal because there's, I know people are DMing me and saying, I'm scared to say this. I'm scared to say that. Let me be that person Don't y'all don't worry about. I got it covered. Y'all scared? I'm not scared. What? Who gonna check me, boo? I'm just like, what can anybody do? Nobody can do anything to me, so I'm gonna just say whatever I want to say. And I did that for like that year. The Creative Accelerator program they accepted applications toward the end of last year, so toward the end of 2021. And honestly, I didn't apply until it was an application call. Like any creator, apply. And people were asking me if I was gonna apply. I'm like, no, like. I'm the rebel rouser on LinkedIn. They're not going to want me in no creator accelerator program where, you know, they're going to like give you a, a bigger platform. It was like by that time I had like over a hundred thousand followers. I'm like, I don't need that. Like I need to just stay in my little area and just do what I got to do. And I think somebody DM me, um, one of my friends on LinkedIn. She's like, you didn't put your application in. And I was like, nah, she was like, it closes like in 30 minutes. I was like, you know what? Let me go ahead and do it. If y'all would see, it's so embarrassing My video that I submitted, I'm like laughing at the video. I'm so unprofessional, looking like a real fool. And I was just like, you know what? It is what it is. They probably don't want me anyway because they know I just be starting stuff on the platform. So I'm going to just throw the chips where they may. And if they don't take me, I'm going to just know, well, they wasn't going to take me anyway. And I was shocked when I found out I was a part of the program because I had no expectation of being a part of the program. It was great to be a part of the program, to see other creators and to be kind of like I mean, we all say we don't need it, but it's almost like validated that my voice is something that's recognized. They know, much as we talk about the idea that some of this, in terms of black identity, black racial equity, black empowerment, women, black women, and some of the microaggression with you. All these topics, people sometimes say, "Well, that doesn't belong here. Go to Facebook with that. You you don't need to be talking about that." But our identity is literally who we are, and I think now with the pandemic. People are starting to see that we got to talk about mental health. We got to talk about LGBTQ. We got to talk about trans. We got to talk about disabilities. All these things are people, people are struggling or people are navigating and people are dealing with these things. So I think that literally became a part of, you know, the conversation and they understood, I believe that that was something that they needed to include as a part of this, this inaugural class for the accelerator.
0: I Liz, I absolutely love your transparency, your Liz. honesty, your vulnerability. Like no. it's just it's 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 so eye-opening. And 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 taking it to another level. I love that you've taken um your your, your education passion, right, outside of the classroom. Cause now you're 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 educating other people about all these different areas and, and, and just in a different way, right? The medium is the medium of how they're getting it and how they're being fed is a different way. And for me, how does it make you feel that you are a change maker, that you are literally educating someone, you are literally saving lives, you're literally, you know, shining a light on other on, on, on taboo topics and things like that, that people are not necessarily open to talking about. But how does that make you feel as a as a as a black woman, immigrant mother, wife, all these things that you're literally you're you're a change maker.
1: Yeah, I don't Liz, There's like literally nothing you can't do apparently. Like I don't know. I'm like, okay. <laughs> the book is coming, the talk show, like what's coming? Oh my god.
2: Yeah, I don't know. And, and it is hard to say because there's times that I wake up and I still can't believe it. It feels like unreal. Like when you say change maker, I am writing a book. I have done I'm doing a podcast. there's all these things that I'm like, a couple years ago, I would have never believed it. And there are days that I I just feel like, how can this be my life? Like, this feels really surreal for me. I get probably dozens of DMs, people connecting with me on LinkedIn saying, thank you for what you're doing. You're appreciated. You're changing. Please keep going. Don't stop. I'll talk to people and people like, I follow your work. And it'd be people like all across, you know, corporate America, people like y'all that are like wow, I love your poll. Oh, I love that post you did. And it does feel, it feels great. It feels inspiring to me to keep going. There are times that I do feel discouraged, but when I do connect with people that are saying you're making change, you're helping, you're helping me to see things that I never knew. And you're really, you know, motivating us to like also lift our voices it does feel good because I always thought that the classroom would only be like the four walls in a college classroom and those 20 students or whatever I have for that term to have a classroom that's global where people all over the world, not even just all of the United States are telling me you're teaching me things that I never would have known, never even thought about and helping me to see things from a different perspective. That's every educator's dream. So I love it.
0: Well, again, shout out to you because I, I love it too. And it's, and again, it's just, it's so, again, it's so encouraging that someone like you do, to, just to have the voice that you have, that is and that is touching lives in the way that you're touching lives. It's, it's just such a beautiful thing. So kudos to you for that. because that, That's just such an amazing uh, thing to be doing. What else do you want to do though? Like you already have this long list of receipts and resume and everything else. Like, Another book coming and things like that. What else would you want to do? I, mean, I honestly see like a radio show. I honestly see like a talk show. I can see so many things for you. I can see you writing a movie. Like there's a lot documentaries and things like that. What else is on your on your on your your wish list of things you want to accomplish?
2: People ask me that. That actually is a question people ask me all the time. And I always say I don't know because I honestly don't know. <laughs> I had no clue. I'm like you know I teach college and people usually were impressed by that. Like oh okay you teach college girl that's good but. To have all this happen literally in the space of like a year and a half, it's been a whirlwind. And I never would have have even guessed that I would be affiliated with Ebony, which is like whenever I tell people, can you come on the Ebony podcast, they're like, Ebony. And I'm like, yeah, like the Ebony magazine. It was on your your mom's coffee table. You weren't allowed to touch it until she was done with it. Like that, Ebony,
1: to be affiliated with that and to be working. How did that, Liz, how did that come about? Just share a little bit more about how that opportunity presented itself. Or did you... Like, how that happened?
2: Oh, that's a good question, too. They slid in my DMs on LinkedIn. (laughs) They asked me, "Do I want to do a podcast? So it is, again, back to LinkedIn, that a lot of the opportunities I've been presented, such as doing the podcast, all the media that I've done as far as interviews as well as writing, like, the op-ed piece for CNN... All of that came via DM. Somebody saying, we saw what you did. We read your posts. We see that you're so, you have so many followers. I have like, oh, like 128 followers, like 28,000 followers. I think at this point, I've been viewed on the platform like 47 million times. My um, my reach is pretty big. And I, I just think that people see it and it, they connect with the, the authenticity of my voice and me just being, like you said, raw and true and authentic. It's like, I had nothing. It's like, I, the biggest shame for me was being arrested. So my thought process is in whatever I share, if I could unpack that and say, the reason I'm sharing that is because I don't want people saying the only people that's getting uh, arrested or racially profiled or, or getting, you know, comply is a six foot five black man that had a criminal record. No, I was 19. I had no criminal record. I was a college student and I got racially profiled too. So if I could share that and and kind of strip that shame away, I just felt like there's nothing I couldn't um, share and, that the opportunities that have come to me have been from people that say, we're really impressed with the fight that, and we really are inspired by the fact that you have been laying yourself there. As far as what I would want to do, I mean, I feel like sky's the limit. I would love to do a radio show. I would love to, you know, I'm writing a book right now. It's going to be out in January. I would love to do a talk show. I just, I just feel like whatever, you know, opportunities come to me, I'm just going to run at them and take advantage of them because like- that's what I'm here for. I'm here to change lives. I'm here to be an inspiration. I'm here to use this opportunity in a meaningful and, and beneficial way for the culture. I, mean, I have a shirt right now that says melanin. Like, I am blackity black, black, black. I, and-
0: I saw that sweatshirt and I was like, I need to ask her where is this from? Because <laughs> I love it. I love the the color block and I love what it says. So. Yes. I, and <laughs> and need, that's what it's all about.
2: That. Repping for the culture, not being afraid, not hiding our blackness. I tell, I posted about this early in my days on LinkedIn. I'm not code switching no more. I stopped code switching after George Floyd because I used to go into a job and I'm like, okay guys, we're going to go ahead and do a presentation and I would affect this like Becky type of voice because I'm like, well that's what they want to hear so I don't want them to hear my down south growl from South Florida because that's going to turn people off and my thought process is if that turns you off then you just don't want me because that's who I am, that's what how I'm sounding when I go talk to my mom, that's how I talk when I go to the grocery store, that's how I talk to my husband and my kids, so I'm not going to affect anything, so I think that that became just kind of like my truth. It was just like, I got to live my purpose. I got to live my dream. I got to live the, the idea of that little 12-year-old black girl that came to this country and was like, I got to dive into black culture. I got to live, breathe. I posted a picture, actually was in the article for CNN about being racial profile. And I have on like a dashiki, kente cloth, because that's how serious I was about it in high school. Like I've got to get into this black culture because these people cannot be picking on me. I got to understand their mind frame. And that's how I've always lived. I'm like, I got to do this and make sure that I'm true and authentic. And I did lose it for a while, living and breathing in this country. It'll make you like disavow your blackness. And that is something wrong with us wanting to not be as black because if we show up too black, then people are going to think we're going to start a riot or have a barbecue or try to do a family reunion or start doing an electric slide in the middle of the office. Like, why is it they think that that our blackness is something to be threatened by or something that's not professional? No. Uh, If your valley girl or your surfer bro accent and voice and mannerism is professional, then my down south, get it girl, bamboo earring or whatever I got on, just as professional as your pearl earring is still an accessory. So I just got into that, making sure that I represented that. And any opportunity that comes my way that is all about that, I'm with it. That's the way I look at it.
1: Liz? I tell you what, I'm trying to hold back the emotion because you have literally said, again, you're just such a light, so unapologetic and the the, the North Star of how we should all be 100% ourselves. And it has really lit me up today. And I had a feeling when we connected on LinkedIn, I was like, wait a minute. I was like, John, this... This 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 woman asked us to be sort of on her pod, and I don't know what drew you to me because I don't even post that often, but I think I was liking your post probably, and I was like, "Who is and this?" <laughs> yes, and commenting, and so I know it took us a while to get it together, and we can't wait to be on the other side. And before we wrap, we want to hear, and it feels like I know the answer, but I want to hear it in your own amazing dirty, dirty South Florida boys, what your love letter is to us, to black entertainment, because our love letter to black entertainment is having the opportunity to highlight you, who's all about representation and authentically, unapologetically being blackity, black, black, black. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question,
2: too. And I would say I had a conversation with I've had a few conversations with people in media that are at the top echelon of all kinds of different um, companies, whether social media or mainstream media. And I think one of the big things for me as an educator is in terms of a love letter, is that media is the new classroom. You know, a lot of students now I have a Gen Z student. She's uh, my daughter. She's 23. And a lot of them are a little bit disenchanted with higher education. A lot of them are turning to YouTube. A lot of them are turning to just media in general to educate themselves. And I guess my love letter to media would be just on the strength of just media is the new way to educate. Media needs to really step it up. And I think that media has a unique role of being able to craft narratives and stories that are representative of Black people culture all around and making sure that our stories are told. We saw quest love. There's been so many people that their voices are being amplified now with stories that are not necessarily like the stereotypical. Like we know that we can have a boys in the hood, which is a great movie, but it's more than gangster There's more than slave. We have many layers and perspectives that need to be told. Our stories are just like so complex and there's a mosaic of what the Black community looks like. So I think that would be just kind of like, for me, I love media, I love movies, I love music, and then that shows in my polls. All I think about is Black media and culture and how it influences not only us in the Black community, but really the whole country and the whole world. So I guess that would be just my thought for just my love of media would be just tell our stories and keep them real.
0: Liz. (laughs) (laughs) that was amazing you are amazing Amazing. keep shining keep being honest authentic represent that black that down south miami that london and all all in between we love you we see you we support you and thank you so much for gracing us with your presence and your voice on black on the scene today
2: thank Thank you you so much.
0: much and we will see you guys next time on black on the scene